Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast all about bringing more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Gretchen, and I'm here with Reverend Sean, back from sabbatical. Welcome, Sean. Hey, it's been a minute. Approximately five months, actually. When I look back, when I think about the entire experience, it feels like it's short. But then when I think about anything that's happened during it, it feels like they happened a long time away. So we're here today to talk a little bit about your sabbatical and welcome you back to the pod, which before the sabbatical, you were mostly the host of. But during this time, Elaine and I, well, mostly Elaine, and occasionally me, we got to host. So this is your welcome back to the podcast. And also because we're in this series about that we call life changing, we thought we'd talk with you especially about your sabbatical in the context of change and what that threshold of both entering the sabbatical and then coming back from the sabbatical was like for you. Maybe see Mm. if there were some lessons for all of us. Well, I have definitely missed this podcast. It's It was such an anchoring thing to do every Tuesday morning was to like sit down and just spend time with what we were exploring on Sunday. I'm grateful to be back in this conversation. So I want to kind of see if you can go back with me, go back in time to that both what feels like a flash ago and also ages ago to that first couple weeks of May Mm -hmm. and the threshold of entering the sabbatical time. And I wonder if you can describe if there was a moment where you realized or you felt in your body that you were no longer in the same place as you were in April, where you felt the change of the sabbatical start to happen in yourself. It took a while. You know, the the first week of sabbatical, I remember I, I started, I mean, before sabbatical, I started to create kind of a list of things that I that I would do or accomplish during the time away because it's such a gift and I didn't want to like squander it. And the first week I like couldn't do anything. Just it was, I, 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 I was like metabolizing all of the fatigue, all of the, the just need to get through this of so much of the COVID space, the constantly pivoting, the figuring things out, the scrappy getting it done, it could all kind of just hit me in that first week. And I like was on the couch and I watched YouTube videos and Netflix. And for the first few days, I was like, oh, this is terrible. I I have how I start my sabbaticals, how I'm going to end it. And I'm just going to be sitting on the couch forever. And I'm a failure. And I don't know why they trusted me with this amount of time, because obviously I am not mature enough to, to take it. So that was the first week. I'm just looking at Gretchen (laughs) and she's just laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I sort of relate with that minor thing. If that was just your first week, then you're in, you that was shorter than my amount of time on my sabbatical that I spent in that space. But I kind of had this fear of failing sabbatical Mm -hmm. and and what a weird thing to be in to that. That's the frame, but there is a kind of, there's a responsibility of not like, what does it mean to squander your time? But I think I'm sure you hope you got to when I got to eventually too, is there something really important in that kind of doing nothing or having the freedom 
to do that that is actually part of the process. Mm-hmm. And also once you get over like, oh, well, that was just a week. And how long is your brain really going to let you do that? Turns out not the whole five months. When I started to get some inklings after like four or five days of that, that I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe this will be the end. Maybe, maybe I'll get to those things that I thought I would do. And so I started to get at the tail end of that week. I started to like, just think about it. And then our whole family got COVID. So then I, we had another week of just, you know, Charles and I went down, my husband. And then a few days later, our kid, like it was just this rolling COVIDness that was like, all right. So now, now it just when I started to feel like I could start to step into what the sabbatical might be after the couch phase, it was like, no, actually, right now is tending to family and tending to your body and just working through that. And, and that actually like gave me a bit of a frame that I've been thinking about for really the first part of sabbatical. I had all of these expectations for myself of what would happen. And firstly, life gets in the way. I think that's pretty much a big part of your sermon today, Gretchen, about plans. But the other part was that there was just a like a debt, a relational debt that was living in our lives because of COVID that needed to be tended to. I hadn't gone back to home in like four years. I hadn't seen my dad in like three, my sister in four years. Like my sister got married in the middle of the pandemic and I couldn't go. And so as I started to emerge from our COVID space, I started to realize that all of the plans I had, and I had a lot, I wanted to write a book maybe or something, maybe learn to type really fast, learn to think about church in the metaverse. So I had all of these very specific things that I thought I would be spending time thinking about. And then suddenly it was like, no, we're going on a three week road trip to Canada. And on the one hand, it was like, yes, I want that. I need that. And the other hand, I was like, oh, this is getting in the way of my sabbatical. <laughs> totally. But then kind of the the lesson of moving through that was realizing that, oh, actually, this is the work. Like, this is what was in front of me, which was, you know, this, this like rupture that we've all experienced. And that, that includes me and my family that needed time to be tended to. And so like the work started to kind of just lay itself out in front of me of like, oh, it's time to tend and to spend time without agenda with this stuff. Hey listeners, it's Gretchen. I want to interrupt this conversation Sean and I had to turn now to the sermon I offered on Sunday, which was about our instincts and hopes of creating a perfect plan. It seems fitting to introduce here as Sean is talking about accepting the ways that his plans could not work out, would not work out, and actually that was a really good thing as it put him in touch with a deeper plan, a fuller plan, what I talk about in the sermon as a more whole plan. So we'll turn to the sermon and then we'll come back and finish up the conversation that Sean and I had. It was February 1990. 
when the South African President Frederick Willem de Klerk made a shocking announcement. He would be releasing Nelson Mandela from prison after 27 years. And he would be legalizing Mandela's political party as well as all the other opposition parties for the first time. And he would be beginning talks towards a political transition. It was an unanticipated announcement. Prior to that, he had been publicly opposed to all of these things. After more than 40 years under apartheid, in a flash, something new was possible. The future was suddenly uncertain, which, as Rebecca Solnit says, is the best thing the future can be. After his announcement, a series of other changes happened, one after another. Adam Kahane, who was a key consultant in the process, later described a flurry of declarations and demands from politicians, from community activists, from church leaders and business people, mass demonstrations by popular movements, and attempts by the police and military to reassert control. All and all manner of negotiating, meetings large and small, formal and informal, open and secret. Even though not everyone, even though everyone was very clear that things could not and would not be as they had been, there was a lot of disagreement about the, what the future would be. People were both excited and also afraid, energized and also kind of weary, just as we usually all are in the middle of big change, that mix of terrified and also kind of hopeful. Kahane says there was a joke that he heard often in the middle of all this change. Faced with our country's overwhelming problems, the joke went, we have only two options, a practical option and a miraculous option. The practical option would be for all of us to get down on our knees and pray for a band of angels to come down from heaven and solve our problems for us. The miraculous option would be for us to talk and work together and find a way forward. In the middle of major change, the idea of connecting with and working with others, especially people that we aren't sure we should trust or we don't know all that well, is often our farthest instinct. Being with others, after all, is messy and emotional. And in the midst of change, we, more often we are seeking the stable the predictable, the logical, the clear-cut. As Karen Herring observes, at the very moment we might most benefit from its support, many of us become the most guarded against community. We tell ourselves that the change we're facing is so unique, no one else can possibly understand. Or our ego or our sense of personal identity says, we've got to make this journey all on our own. We must, as the phrase goes, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We must get to work, make a plan. A plan where we have properly anticipated all of the potential options and planned for them. We make a perfect plan. 
where all of the uncertainty of the moment can be replaced instead with clarity and control. Plans feel so good, especially when you're in the middle of a lot of change. Stanford philosophy professor Michael Bratman says, planning gives people a sense of personal freedom and autonomy. So that in the midst of change, plans become a way that we get to claim our own agency. Like we have a say in our own life and in the future. Plans don't just feel good, of course, they're also very practically helpful. They get, help us make sense of a lot of complexity, they help make goals become more possible, and they help settle our brains down so that we can focus more on living our lives right now. One of the first things the pandemic took from us was our capacity to plan, at least beyond the very short term. Plans are built on the idea, after all, that things in the future are going to be somewhat like the things of the past, right? That variations in the future will occur with a somewhat logical basis and occur within a certain reasonable span of possibilities. The pandemic stole this sense of future predictability and logic and instead invited us to live in a world where plans were mostly proven over and over to be a fool's game. Take, for example, our staff plans last year, right around this time, when we decided that we would really get a, get a uh, we'd start in October or so to really plan our Christmas gathering. We said, okay, we're, we think we'll be ready by then for a large gathering, and so we reserved space at the Lincoln Center, we, which would accommodate people more safely than could be accommodated here in this smaller space. We held many meetings, including at the Lincoln Center, to walk through how it would all work. We recruited singers and nativity storytelling participants, and we sent postcards of promotion. We reached out personally. We were more than ready to spend Christmas together once again in one great gathering. By early December, we were thrilled that nearly 400 people had registered to attend. It was all coming together perfectly. <laughs> that is, until Omicron. Omicron arrived. I know it's hard to place where we are in the, the pandemic timeline, but um, it arrived last December. And it's, at that time, kids were not allowed to be uh, vaccinated yet. And it was a service particularly geared towards families with younger children at home. And so we decided, after a lot of back and forth and hand-wringing, to scrap our perfect plans. And instead, we found ourselves once again scrambling in a last-minute plan. Within days, portable stages were rented, outdoor stage lighting was set up, and the whole script was rewritten and turned into two smaller services. We reached out to all 400 people who'd registered, many of you probably, and you and others were mostly understanding and even grateful. 2021's curveballs weren't done with us yet. However, three days before Christmas Eve, we learned that someone who had been in my home unmasked for an extended period of time tested positive for COVID. And our church safety guidelines at the time meant that I could not attend Christmas Eve. Once again, the whole script had to be adjusted. And for the first time in 10 years of Christmas Eves at Foothills, I missed the whole thing. Now, it was hard to accept 
back in March of 2020, April 2020, whenever we made this announcement, some of you were around then, we made the announcement that we were gonna be all online for a whole year. And at the time, that was, that was hard to accept. But the upside of that meant that at least in this one realm of life, we could plan. But by the fall of 2021, that small piece of predictability fell away. And every other week felt like we were making it up as we went along. And this wasn't just true in church life. It was also schools and businesses and travel plans, weddings and memorials and graduations and family gatherings. Everyone all over the place was in a constant state of making a plan, throwing out the plan, last minute scramble, repeat. And even worse, unlike in 2020 where we had that sense of being in the mess together, by 2021 there were like a million different ways that people understood what was happening, what mattered, how to respond, what safety meant, and how best we would move into the future. A little like the joke from South Africa, it felt like there were two options for us. And the practical option would be for a band of angels to come down and solve our problems. And the miracle would be that we'd all work together and actually bring an end to the global pandemic. 30 years ago, when faced with their sudden and world-shifting change, the South African leadership realized that if they were going to truly bring about the sort of change they longed for, they would need to start by overcoming a similar isolation and division. To build their future, they would need to make that miracle happen. And as Karen Herring says it, they would need to, in the middle of their big change, claim companions in the widest possible sense. After all, you may know the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It actually started as an insult. It was thrown at people who had the delusional and or egotistical sense that they could go it on their own. In the same way that it is obviously impossible and also delusional to think that you could pull yourself up if you're fallen by your own bootstraps. Only decades later did that insult get confused as congratulations and somehow the foolishness as a source of pride. Given the complexity of life today and the pace of change, I think it would be wise to remember the phrase's original meaning. And as Karen Herring says, if it is pulling up we need, we might realize that it is delusional to think that any of us could do it on our own. The people of South Africa came to a similar conclusion. Before they could begin imagining their future, they would need to locate themselves together in a shared present. They convened a conversation across a great diversity of people, some of whom before that they weren't even sure could be in the same room, but all of whom cared a great deal about where they were going. They needed to get to know each other and build trust and learn to move, as Adrian Marie Brown says, at the speed of trust. Most change processes actually never move past this first stage. You get the folks in a room and um, people try to move quickly through that stage of building relationship and so therefore never actually establish trust. As Kahane says, many of the people in this stage are often skeptical 
or suspicious. Some are invested in the status quo or in their own competing effort to deal with it. You have to work hard to overcome the centrifugal fragmentation and polarization that motivated you to try to organize a change process in the first place. You may need to try many times before you can find a way to get the conversation up off the ground. You may fail and you may decide to walk away or you may try another time and another way. In the case of South Africa, once the different folks ended up in that same room, the first big challenge was just to articulate a shared understanding of what was happening around them. Not just from their own vantage point, but to begin to see the bigger picture with fresh eyes. They listened to one another, and they also commissioned research, and they went on field trips to see experiences that were not their own. They looked for what the structural driving forces were, and the themes of both what they could, what they could see and what they could not see. Kahane calls this a process of breathing in before you get to a breathing out. Breathing out being the process of imagining the future. You have to fully breathe in all the different ways you might understand and accept where you actually are before you can begin to imagine where you're going next. The breathing out came eventually as they moved together to create a shared sense of the, that the future was not yet written, to borrow Elaine's mantra from last week. The future was not yet written, and also the future was emergent, as in being shaped through a process of ongoing co-creation, a process that they could help shape, and also a process beyond any one of their individual control, which also means that it was beyond anything that could be fully planned. To help activate their roles as co-creators in their shared future, the conveners of the conversation invited them to describe the potential ways that they could imagine the future could go. Not should go or would go, just try to get on the same page about all the possible ways the future could go. Finding agreement on those variety of possible outcomes helped the stakeholders imagine together the story of all those different stories that they wanted to live from. It was a different kind of planning, what later came to be called a transformative scenario planning process. Because it was not just about adapting to changes, just receiving the changes as they're happening, but also finding ways to help shape that change, to become partners in the co-creation. Now in seminary, we learned that in all the various places where we've translated the Bible from the Greek to the English word perfect, an equally valid choice of translation would be the word whole. I've hung on this as a reminder that instead of seeking perfection, as in blamelessness or free from mistakes, we could instead seek wholeness as in something more deeply complete, something more abundant. When we turn first to one another and claim companions in the middle of change, we create the possibility not for a perfect plan, but for a plan that is more whole and more in tune with our mutual wholeness, a plan where we can co-create our future and where we can choose the story together that we want to live from. 
Our Christmas Eve services last year were definitely not what we planned for. But they were beautiful because we were grounded in community. I mean, I knew that even though I wasn't there, the gathering would continue on because our community is not about any one of us. It's about the power of all of us and the shared story that we choose to live from. That is the story of being bound up together in the tangled blessing of life and the power of courageous love that brings us through it all. Our gathering wasn't perfect, but it was whole. This is what I hope for as we look ahead to our future, that we will continue to turn to each other as co-creators, co-creators in a future that is based not in specific outcomes, but in specific relationships. Because the world, it continues to shift, and the changes are not over yet. We practice all of this here, and then that allows us to bring it out into the world and into our lives. We learn here to move at the speed of trust, and we make space together for an emergent future that we co-create. May it be so. And amen. In my conversation with Sean and his description of his sabbatical and that moment where he realized he needed to let go of his perfect plan, he described the rupture that we have all experienced through the time of pandemic, particularly a rupture of relationships. It struck me in listening to him that it's something that all of us have experienced, as he said, And yet most of us have not really taken the time to let that reality integrate in us. We we haven't had the time. We have all accumulated the sorts of experiences I describe in the sermon where we've had to instead hustle to try to pivot and set aside our ideal plans to instead make space for what was actually possible. And often in that pivoting, there was something, as I said, something really beautiful. And also doing this over and over and over again across a whole society and whole communities and whole families, it adds up to a lot of weariness where it can. And so I really appreciate hearing from Sean, who's been able to take some time intentionally to reflect on that experience and to hear his insights and advice about how we can heal and move through and rebuild and tend to those ruptures in relationships and in systems and in our our own minds and hearts and bodies. So with that, I want to turn us back to the conversation I had with Sean and hear some of those insights and reflections he is bringing with him as he crosses the threshold back from sabbatical into ministry with us once again. The moment that it really struck me that I was like in that space was actually, it was after the decision around Roe came out and I realized that I didn't need to say anything about it, that I didn't need to think about our community's response, that that wasn't mine to do. And that was the moment for me that I was like, oh, I've taken off a little bit of that weight of like looking at the world as something that I need to think about how we're ministering to and with. 
And I could just have my own reactions and my own stuff. It was relieving, but it was also scary and anxiety producing. I started to grieve that the sabbatical I thought I was going to have wasn't the sabbatical I was having and needed to have truly. Or the practice that I took up was to not be productive, which is really hard because doing things and feeling like I should be doing things is really connected to my sense of worth. And it is a it is an amazing, amazing bypasser or a way to bypass exactly what you're saying. The word that came to mind is a, it's a dodge. <laughs> yeah, it completely dodges all of your own stuff that was going on, that is going on. Your reactions, the feelings, the body sensations, the messages, all of that, that is constantly trying to communicate really important things to us. And so July was a process of unraveling the defense mechanisms from engaging with that and truly trying to relax into it. And so I spent a lot of time just trying and practicing being content without doing and being content with the anxiety that that caused. Like my anxiety went through the roof in them. And in a way, it was like a great teacher, a great place to practice because I didn't have, I mean, I was getting paid and I didn't have to do any work. Why would my anxiety go through the roof? Externally, I was the most free and had the most just capacity to do whatever the heck I wanted to do. So you'd logically think, oh, you would feel great. But actually, I felt supremely anxious. And all the mechanisms that I use, all the way that work and ministry is a, is a it kind of covers up that anxiety or channels it and doesn't dissipate it. It all just came flooding out. And so... I started to just realize that, oh, this is, this is part of the work mm -hmm. is to actually pause and to listen and figure out when my anxiety was telling me something important and when it was just anxiety that could just go away and work on what does it mean to dissipate that, to accept it, but to dissipate it. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on this sermon called thresholding, kind of how do you hold at the threshold or how are we held at the threshold? And it's from Karen Herring's book, Trusting Change. And this idea she offers, which is about a transformative pause. And what I really hear you describing is an opportunity to really pause in a way that you didn't have to rush ahead to the next like how you'd feel next, which allows for the potential of change in yourself, real change in yourself or change. It just allows you to process and integrate in a deeper way and allows grace to show up in a fuller way. It was a lot of, a lot of body work, a lot of trauma work, a lot of remembering and clarifying what, what are my values? What are, what is important to me? Mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate just having a greater degree of contentment with that reality of not needing it as much of it, it to be clear. That was a place that I found a lot of anxiety was clarity and 
plans. Wishing for clarity or kind of being afraid of clarity? Of, of finding clarity in like cognitive understandings. Oh, if I just had enough information, if we just figured that if we just knew this, then I'd feel okay. Versus having a confidence within me almost that that whatever is coming can be navigated without needing to know exactly how. There's kind of two sources of trust that I heard in what you were describing, but I just, I'm curious if you could share a little more about how you orient to them, which is one is trusting yourself more and trusting that you're able to better meet whatever comes. And one is a sense of trusting life or spirit or however you might characterize something beyond yourself, something that is not you. I wonder how each of those are showing up or have shown up during your sabbatical and are showing up now. Hmm. I don't know if you ever had that experience where you look back and you think, oh, I knew something there that I didn't fully trust, but I knew it. Like there was some voice, some even like body sensation. Like I've had experiences where I've met someone and my body has reacted in like really like odd ways that of like protective ways of like, you, you just need to not be in this situation. And then, you know, days, months, years later, you, you kind of connect the dots about, oh, there was something about that person that was unsafe. And even though you had no like cognitive sense of what it was, or like no information, none, none of the interactions you could pinpoint as like, oh yeah, that was the thing that was unsafe. But yet you knew, like there's something vibrational, something relational that you just pick up on. I've a lot of, relied on a lot of my brain to help me feel confident in navigating things. And I feel like the turn, the practice that I'm moving on to is trusting those kind of deeper, that, that deeper wisdom. I don't know, that feels like hubristic to claim, but like, you know, the wisdom that's within us that is not, that is, that is gathered from the unconscious and gathered and accumulated over all of our lived experience. And that is surfaced to us often in often sideways, and yet we can tune into it. So I think what you're doing is refusing my binary in a sense of that the intuition kind of deeper knowing is you and also is not you. A kind of access to wisdom, wisdom as the spirit of wisdom or I don't know how many of our listeners would get, but sort of a Sophia kind of wisdom, right? Or maybe I should offer that to you as just as a, as a reflection, or maybe something you could claim is just to say mm-hmm. that this thing you're trying to tap into or trying to trust, it is both an affirmation of you, Sean, but also something that exists within you that is beyond you. Yes. Yeah. And it's something that we create and unlock together. Yeah. Yeah. Because and then I think as I was thinking about that other side of how I was going to respond about trusting the something greater, I think the biggest thing that I've done and it is to decouple myself from trusting false things about that, which is greater, mm. which, which have to do with what I was referencing before that 
that somehow with the right whatevers, we can make things manageable. We can go beyond our, our finite bodies and minds and hearts and getting rid of those or practicing getting rid of those, exercising those for myself, which has not been easy and is ongoing. I think has helped me I don't, relax some of the defense mechanisms and the protective mechanisms that I've that I've accumulated over my life that get in the way of some of that that deeper and that shared knowing. When yeah, you don't like, have to be right or you don't have to figure it out or like you don't know you don't need to know what to do. There's a lot of freedom there to actually witness and sense what might be true. It's a kind of undoing of idolatry that I hear. Mm. That of kind of false sense of ultimate security and trying to live into something that's more real, more reliable source of comfort, ultimacy, guidance. It's also relying on something that on face value seems less reliable. Right. And not helpful. Right. But that's the thing about idols. Right. They're more concrete usually. So now here you are in October where you are crossing this next threshold back in. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that thing that you touched, even if you can't, you didn't have it hundred percent in your grasp of trusting that you can meet whatever comes with, I don't, I don't know the word, I can't remember the word you use, but that you're cap- we're capable of meeting whatever comes. Do you feel you're carrying that with you or how is that feeling in you at this stage this is week two this is the week where all the meetings are happening and the email is turned on and there's messages online i feel i feel that kind of that fledgling feels a little too me but like when you molt and your skin is still speaking as if I'm an animal that wants, but you know, <laughs> well, like, I'm right there with you. I'm right. It, like you're, yeah. it's like, it's real skin. It, it is protective, but it's not fully there yet. And that's yeah. kind of how I feel about this, like heart quality that I'm trying to explore heart orientation uh, of kind of trusting some of these deeper parts and messages that I, that I'm, that I feel solid and grounded in, even as there's so much to know. And I think part of that is knowing that actually life is completely overwhelming and there's no way to make it not overwhelming. There's no strategy that any of us could come up with, no system, no nothing that will make life not overwhelming. Yeah. And there's no way for us to accomplish everything that we think we should or ought to, or would be right to do. Yeah. And yet holding those two things, accepting them, painful, there's still a lot of space for, for navigating with a different kind of orientation. And I wish this sort of change work was, was like neat and tidy, like some sort of Lego set that once you put all the pieces together, you saw the finished product and you're like, oh yeah, that's awesome. It's all together now, Mm -hmm. but it's not like that you're, you're, you're kind of, you're assembling and you don't know what you're assembling and you don't know when you're going to be done, but you look back and you're like, oh, I'm in a different place. But it's sometimes hard when you're in that assembling process to know exactly what you, where you are in that arc and, and what is, and what exactly is different. And that's kind of what I'm feeling coming back in 
to foothills in this time is I feel different in some ways. I have a different relationship with my interior world, but it's hard to express in your short conversation of what did you get up to in your sabbatical? How was your sabbatical? I think it's, it's a sort of change that, that is still like unfolding and unfurling and flowing out. And that's why I feel like I'm at. Just because we sort of skipped ahead a little bit to go back really quickly. If there's something that you think that most helped you move into that mindset that you would offer as like, okay, if (laughs) you could do like have this sort of experience or have this kind of practice, it would most help you move through life with that sense of trust. What does your intuition and wisdom tell us, Sean? (laughs) Now I've set myself up, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you could just go back. Like, what do you think made a difference and what kind of experience helped make a difference? Cause that's a pretty significant shift having known you for a few years now that I know that, you know, hanging on to that sense of concretized plans and knowledge is a really important tool for you. So to say, even if you could grasp, you know, another thing of kind of your deeper intuition and yeah. That, so what do you think helped with that shift? I think two things. The first thing, I think anxiety is a really good teacher. So to cultivate a practice of like noticing where anxiety shows up, what's really helped me is to notice where that anxiety is coming from and what strategies I natively deploy to deal with it as as just places to notice and to be curious about. Is that a coping strategy for something else? Like, is it a Band-Aid for something deeper? And, and to ask yourself that question of like, oh, I wonder what this is protecting. I wonder what this, this feeling, this anxiety is all about. I think that would be a practice. It's not a fun one, but it's a liberating one. I think the second is something that's really helped me I read this book, Oliver Beekman's 4,000 Weeks. And one of the impulses he says is that whenever you have a generous impulse, you should do it right away. Because there's so many ways that you can talk yourself out of that generous impulse. And so that's been like a micro practice I've been exploring recently, which has been awesome. I would give it to you. Do it. It truly is the best. The extrapolated practice from that is when you feel like you want to make a jump and to say a thing that's scary or to do a thing that you feel truly should happen is to just stop thinking about it and do it. Realizing that you can survive it, looking back, seeing that you made the jump. There's like a muscle there of just trusting that when you have this instinct that you feel like it, it is worth jumping off the cliff and that you will be met on the other side, practicing that allows you to take more and more risks towards what is truer and truer. Sometimes that's starting small of like admitting things to yourself about what is true for you. Even things that don't feel like they should be true, but they are. Risking telling other people about what is true for you or your desires risking claiming that you want to try something new, any of those things. 
just build that capacity for you to trust yourself. It reminds me of the saying from the Tao that if you trust people, you make them trustworthy. And so it might be the reverse, which is if you don't trust people, you make them untrustworthy. But also if you say just not people, but life. So part of what your, your practice, you kind of, you are turning it in again of if you're trusting yourself, you make yourself trustworthy. You teach yourself that you're trustworthy, but also what you're doing by leaping is trusting others or trusting life that it will catch you. And so you're teaching yourself and you're teaching, you're turning that cycle into that possibility of that trust is built in that. Yes. Part of that is knowing that so many times that we're making these leaps, it doesn't turn out exactly how you think it should or, or, the, or you want to because you're in community and you're connected to people and there are consequences and there's realities that that just ripple out. But part of that, that jump is that it's worth making the ripples and it's worth shifting the dynamic and it's worth compromising also when other people need other things as you're making those shifts and all of that is is good because yes it's not just you as a solitary person but it is a practice that we do together well i'm looking forward to hearing more about your sabbatical i'm sure everyone is as well over the coming weeks and months and also being a part of witnessing and helping reinforce that sense of inner trust and growing trust and moving through things so this is a good beginning thanks for sharing thanks for the conversation and and yeah, it'll be beautifully annoying for people to ask me about this all the time. <laughs> this, uh, to keep good... saying, how, how are you trusting your inner wisdom, Sean? <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be like, I'll be super annoyed by it, but in a really good way. And isn't that like sometimes what community is all about? I was going right? to say, that is covenant <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, it's well good that, to be back though. Yeah. So with that, we'll close our conversation and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, likewise. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'm continuing to think about some of Sean's reflections, especially around the ways that anxiety can be a good teacher and how we can stay put in anxiety long enough for us to notice the coping techniques that we often deploy that get in the way of the learning we actually need to be doing. I'm really excited to have Sean back in the coming weeks and months. And even if it's annoying to invite him and all of us to tap into that deeper wisdom and that deeper trust as we move through change together. As we close, I want to offer you the closing words that I offered on Sunday They're some of my favorites. I return to them over and over in my work and in my life. They're from the great Thomas Merton. He says, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, You start to more and more concentrate, not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything.
That concludes our podcast episode for today. If you appreciate what we're up to here on the pod, appreciate being able to return to our sermons or hear them for the first time or to dive deeper like we were able to today with Sean. We'd love to have your support and partnership through a financial gift. It is the giving of this community that makes this kind of podcast possible, makes all of this possible. You can go to foothillsyouhoo.org forward slash give, click on make a donation. It should be pretty easy from there. Every amount is appreciated. And if you like this episode, please pass it on to someone who you think also might enjoy it. Have a good week and may whatever plans you have be fulfilled, not perfectly, but in a way that gets at that something more whole, a deeper wholeness for us all. So we're gonna hold with our hands